You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders. I'm Michaela, I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by three senior leaders in the Melbourne tech community to discuss the topic, leadership and innovation. Before we delve deeper into the topic, it would be great to meet our panelists. Rob, can you go first, introduce yourself and kick things off for us? Hi, I'm Rob. Um, I've been in the industry for just over two decades um, the first decade was spent mostly software engineering, and then the second half of that decade was, sorry, second part of that two decades was spent in uh, leadership. Uh, recently, I moved into Redbubble as one of the engineering managers, uh, focusing within the search and recommendation space um, and trying to build, continue to build high-performing teams. So keen to hear more, more about this, this episode. Awesome. Thank you, Rob. Mohammed, do you want to introduce yourself, please? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Mohammed Sunil Bukhari. So I'm working as head of data engineering for Asia Pacific uh, with Maritime Australia. Um, roughly got around 18 plus years of experience, uh, mostly on the data side. So that's the that's my passion, data analytics, how to make it do a more efficient way of you know moving data across and analysis on it. Um, and yeah, that, that's uh, pretty much. Great. Thanks, um, Mohammed. Iran, do you want to go next, please? Sure. Hi, everyone. So my name is Iran Steeler. I'm the principal software architect at Luxury Escapes. I have more than 20 years of experience in technologically leading organizations for various challenges. This includes things like digital transformation, migration to the cloud, migration to microservices. And from my experience, all of these challenges involve both an innovative technical aspect and a leadership aspect. And that's why I'm very keen like, on being part of the discussion today with you. Fantastic. Thank you very much, everybody. We will now dive into our first question, which was posed to the group by Rob. The question was, within smaller organizations, typically everyone, including the leaders, must wear multiple hats. Could domain-specific leadership committees help for example, things like delivery, coaching, or technology committees. Rob, you can kick this one off, please. Thank you. So the the topic is really around companies that uh, you know can be smaller in size, therefore you know wear multiple hats, and the domain can spread across you know leadership plus teams, um, and you know you could kind of see yourself spending more time in one certain aspect, you know, or data or or governance or delivery versus other aspects uh, like leadership and, and architecture. So having kind of that spread of knowledge, I'm keen to kind of see how this might work in other places where, you know, it's a very similar similar space. Um, but, uh, you know, I've thought about, you know, maybe creating committees where they, they there's a committee of leaders that, you know, are passionate about certain aspects of, you know, um, that particular delivery model um, or other things. Um, or, you know, what, what other ways can there be to kind of have that spread of knowledge, spread of passions, you know, and kind of maintain a high level of quality and, and delivery as a whole for product. Um, so, yeah, keen to kind of unpack that a little bit uh, and see what the thoughts are. 
Um, from my perspective, I think um, I've seen a few organizations who also work on the squad model, where they've got different squads who focus on different technology areas. Um, but in my implementation experience, one of the negative things I've seen is when a squad or a specific team is very focused, they tend to excel in one part of the area. And when the other domain comes in, they tend to negate that. So the end result is more friction. So what I've seen working more easily is um, a mixture of capabilities where you have got one person of each domain in one squad, and that provides that input. Or else each individual team would just get limited or be specific, and they're just you know, groups of people just being organized, and they, you know, they don't achieve anything substantial. I think, sorry, I think the model that I've seen that works pretty well is where you have teams that are, you know, because I'm going to call them self-organizing or teams that encapsulate all of the capabilities they need. For example, you know, I can tell you that where I work on the luxury escapes, every team basically has all the capabilities to, let's say, develop their services from start to end. They have the product manager who works with them, they have the capability to deploy and test their services. So we don't have like the silos of, you know, you're testing, you're delivering, you're deploying. And that really gives us the ability to innovate quickly and get features out rapidly. I have to admit that one thing that we need to work with when we have this kind of models, they need to organize, like to have some sort of a cross team you know, I won't call it synchronization organization where we share knowledge across teams. So we avoid having like one team doing things one way, one team's doing one team doing things another way. So it's something that in this model we should really pay for like focus to. Cool. Thank you. Um yeah, and I was kind of more thinking about that wider space of you know across teams, given that you know the assumption is every team kind of has that uh, full end-to-end -end autonomy to deliver feature sets you know when you're looking at the the broader spectrum of across multiple different teams you know department for example you know you could have some things stronger just naturally in certain aspects uh, maybe they're more heavy devops maybe they're more heavy uh, front-end ui maybe they're more heavy this and that so having that sort of spectrum you'll have leaders that will maybe align to those kind of facets so then how as leaders and teams do you kind of get yourselves aligned to certain types of strengths and weaknesses and you know so my thought was building committees within that kind of space to help maybe socialize or evangelize certain aspects or even share knowledge across kind of more towards your point uh, maybe around yes so like something i know i'm trying to do on my aspect or like i said i'm the principal architect is where i'm trying um, i've built this organization where we have this committee or forum every week, we call it the architecture advisory forum, where people from various teams, mainly the engineering managers, but also developers who present sometimes because developers present their work and what they plan to do. And that's from my perspective, perspective like a main place where we can share knowledge around architecture across the organization. And I assume, I assume this model can be applied towards various other aspects as well, for example, you know, delivery, testing, DevOps, whatever is needed. So my focus is architecture, but yeah, I think having this place where everyone can have a conversation, eventually conversation is what matters. Where everyone can have the conversation and spread the knowledge across, that's the best way to like break those silos of knowledge. 
Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for your contributions. Um, we'll move on to our next question, which was put forward to the group by Mohammed. The question was, how can an organization structure itself and it enables itself to embrace and promote innovation? Yes, look, that's a very uh, interesting question for, that I uh, I think uh, from my side that um, organizations are trying to promote innovation. And I think there is a realization in the market where innovation is no longer a luxury, but uh, a means for survival. So therefore, the organizations try to embed innovation in every aspect of it. But then how do they promote that? How do they embrace that? Because Historically, I mean, from my being in the last 10, 12 years in consultancy and working with different clients, what I've seen is that there is, for example, most probably the middle management who always talk about, you know, we need to be more innovative, where we are not getting the endorsement from the organization, from the leadership. And many times they are themselves the bottleneck at the same time. So the innovation, I think, in order to maybe one way of approaching it is to make it a strategic priority where the leadership team on the top understands that, yes, innovation is one of the key things that we will need to target. Um, and they, they question everyone on it. It's part of their agenda. And then when you come down to the second layer of management, uh, which is more on the middle management, they need to have that room. So many times they want to be innovative. They want to do that, but they don't have that capacity or that freedom, or maybe you know they're just too much, uh, you know, uh, work, uh, doing the the normal work, you know, day to day stuff that they don't have that capacity or extra trying to get that innovation done. So the way to tackle middle management that I've seen is that you can have a group of you know like thinkers who who are like you know who want to be innovative, and you take out some part of their time so that they can spend some time on the innovation and those thought leaders in within the middle management get together. So that establishes more like a forum. So, you know, something like maybe what Rob was touching on more like a committee. So maybe not too technical, but more on the innovation side where you've got a, a group of innovators who regularly touch up, who share their ideas, who, you know, try to promote each one of them. So that is, I think, that part in the middle management serves up to the top leadership to address their strategic goals. And then in the lower side, uh, below the, the middle management, where you've got more technical workers and all of those, you can define, you can identify the early adopters. So they are always in organizations where, of course, people who are early technology adopters. So those skills, those different people can be clubbed together or be attached to that committee or that middle management who would be who would keep an who would have an, a good eye of what's going on in the market on the new things that are coming out and then they provide that input because at the end of the day middle management can make a lot of decisions but they need to be implemented and they need to be implemented by people who understand the new innovations that are happening in the market so this value chain is maybe one way uh, that i think if uh, you know for the management to embrace that innovation and make it part of their daily working that's an interesting point interesting question because i think innovation we can typically divide in like two parts the way i see it at least there's innovation in the product in the thing that we're building and there is innovation in the technology and how do we build you know, this thing that we're building. And when it comes to innovation and technology, which is the area I'm more interested in, I think it it comes down to two parts. One is how much thought space is given, you know, to think about these things, because innovation doesn't, you know, just 
happen because we want it. We need to be we need to be aware of it. We want to have it and want to devote time to it. I mean, there are specific people who are innovative by nature, but that's not the norm, I think. And in order to devote time to innovation, I think we need to do two things. One is we need to value long-term thinking. We need to value, okay, where do we want to be? Not just in one month or two months. Where do we want to be one year from now, two years from now, three years from now? And give time and think about it. Again, both from the the product side and from the technology side. So how do we want to implement it? Which products do we want to use? Which technologies, which architectures, and so on. And the other aspect of it is, is actually devoting time for it. So things like hackathons, for example, are a great, great way to arouse that innovation, to let everyone in the organization, like for example, offer ideas on what do they think that we should do next? What is the next innovative thing that we can implement, that we can think of, and how should we do it? And then devote some time to actually implementing it and having even maybe a competition around it. So I've seen it working in several organizations in the past, and I think it was a great way to, to really have that innovation and get people to think about it actively, which is, I think, the hard part. Yeah, very interesting. I'd like I look at it um, as a combination of both product and technology. So, kind of what um, Aaron was talking about, but uh, de dedicating some some portion of time um, and committed time from the business uh, to discover uh, and creating a space to innovate, um, and then then putting the people, the right people, to solve a particular challenge in that space. So you know, and it really really means that the business needs to be quite firm on objectives so what the business wants to achieve um, and then creating that kind of uh, cycle around you know everybody in a, in a specific domain or space of discovery is involved in feeding back to each other around in a loop until you know we're, we're reaching a certain objective we're reaching a certain kind of discovery milestone so um, you promote innovation like that and kind of um, which is already mentioned but the other spaces is really within more technical teams, um, maybe even within uh, committees, as I mentioned before, but uh, an area where you can dedicate some portion of your of your time to uh, learn, innovate, um, and kind of create that, um, just create that atmosphere to to promote to promote. It. As Aaron was mentioning, it's it's some people by nature tend towards innovating all the time, but it's not the norm. So how to kind of harness that energy? Uh, from those types of people um, to be able to promote and you know energize the rest of the teams or people around them to be able to kind of push forward from an objective perspective. But I think you know carving out that time, I think more towards what you're probably mentioning, Mohammed. I think it needs commitment from the business um, that they want to innovate, and there's a reason for that, and that reason is better down in the organization, and then there's feeling from the teams that they can contribute and 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 discover and innovate. So yeah, one thing I want to say that. Innovation often comes from a challenge. The organization has a certain challenge they need to to, to implement or need to work through. And like in my in one of my previous roles, I was a consultant. I worked in consultancy for many years, and like I said, I worked with many organizations. And I typically came to those organizations when they had a challenge. They wanted to migrate to the cloud. They wanted to migrate to microservices. They want to do some sort of digital transformation. And what we did back then, what I usually tend to do is have this sort of workshop where 
we placed multiple people in the same room. So there were various stakeholders. It could be the the VP R&D, it could be the CTO, it could be the CEO, again, depending on the size of the organization, how big is the challenge, the product owners and so on. We put like various stakeholders in the room. And for three to five days, again, depending on the scope, we discussed what is our current situation, what is our problem, what do we want to achieve, where do we want to be in three, five years time, depending on the scope. And then we thought, about, okay, how are we going to get there? And I think that placing a lot of people, various stakeholders from with various perspectives, some of the product perspective, some of the technical perspective and so on, in the same room and having a conversation about long-term goals and how do we get there, I think that has that has a large value in like promoting innovation and and getting better results for the organization. Yeah, look, I just wanted to add just one point to what uh, uh, Rob was saying. Um, and definitely those committees and everything uh, definitely helps. I think the one thing which I think also adds value is the reward system. So I think it's very important that the innovation be rewarded. So it's not just, you know, some bunch of guys just you know investing their time trying to be more techy and discovering new things but when the innovation happens and it depends the organization it enhances that capabilities that needs to be shown that look that is more rewarded than anything else because the, in, in our organization i've always seen there are people who want to uh, maintain the status quo they don't want to change that so you know it's more like a kind of anti-hero like you know, tell the shift kind of thing where, you know, those new innovators are there changing and bringing change and then recognition of that. And that enhances that uh, that cycle of innovation that shows management's direction that, okay, this is what they value and they don't. So I think that is, I think, maybe one aspect that definitely needs to be added. Great. Thanks, everybody. Those are, you had some really good answers there. Um We'll move on to the next question, um, which was posed to the group by Iran. The question was, how do you approach technical debt and what strategies have you found most effective in managing and reducing it over time? Yeah, so I think I think it's worth explaining the term technical debt, basically referring to technical debt as something that we've built, we've wrote a piece of software, we've created something. But we know we didn't do it in the you know, the best possible way. And defining best is hard, but we know we did something. We went through some shortcuts. We wanted to get things out fast because we want to deliver the feature set faster to our customers. And we know that this might come back and bite us when we need to change something in the future. And that's usually when it's a problem. When we need to change something in the future, we need to get back to that. And I was keen to know how do you see in your organizations the approach to managing technical debt, to understanding what it is, to understanding to non-technical stakeholders the meaning of it, and how do you fix it? I think there's um, this is a very good, very good space to talk about. Um, I think there's there's definitely the the known debt that you kind of just raised, and then there's the unknown debt that you don't know you're in, inheriting. Um, and that could just be because of your implementation, but also could be just what you've inherited as part of a team as well. Um, and I think for for me personally, it's really about um, trying to kind of get that aligned to the business. So when you know there's there's debt going to be inherited and, and built in, you know, 
measuring, I mean, obviously measuring that and trying to identify that with the business is key to kind of getting that back around. Um, but really, for me, the more you track about it, the better it's going to be. So if you can track debt before, during, and kind of after implementation, you know, have that kind of spread of measurements then it can kind of at least prepare you and the team to be able to be on top of it as much as possible and just socialize that across the business and make sure that everyone's on top of that. So, you know, before can be tracked as part of just designs. You know, you might be coming up with a PSC in a very simple design with your team, you know, being an architect. It could just be you can trade-offs, you know, you're making trade-offs in a design and going, you know that you're going to inherit some debt here um, and marking that down somewhere, you know, logging it. Um, during can be tracked with, you know, just documentation rituals, for example. So, you know, using platforms like Jira, uh, not that it kind of does any uh, special analysis, but it can at least help you and the team flag with, you know, levels of risk and debt that you're kind of going to inherit or build into as part of that maybe story or, or ticket. Um, and after, with a kind of probably after implementation, maybe with more of a solid DevOps process where, you know, you have measurements and you, you can measure all these things. And that's kind of where you can start seeing potentially um, hidden debt that you just weren't even aware of, um, you know, CPU spikes or whatever they might be. Um, even using Dora metrics, for example, you, you might have lead time for changes that are just long um, and, you, and you don't know why. And you kind of, it gives you an indication, just like burn down charts, gives you an indication that something's not right, not healthy. Um, but essentially, it's kind of like that trade-off of, you know, you have quality that you want to bake in and you have your development costs. <laughs> and, and it's that that kind of tech debt ratio that that's kind of um, being spruced around a little bit, but, you know, trying to kind of get down to the bottom of what is our current tech debt stack? Uh, what will it be? And how can we kind of mitigate in the future? I don't necessarily believe it will ever reduce to zero. It's just about balancing what the business is comfortable with owning, what the team's comfortable with owning, and you know pushing that forward. So, and trying to keep it at a, at a level that's sustainable is probably the the most important thing. Yeah, look, I think I, I definitely tend to um, you know agree with Rob. Um, you know, you can't remove technical debt, you know, completely. Um, I think a, a year ago, one and a half year ago, I was working for a large retail uh, company based here in Melbourne, and um, you know, they like I'm in the data space, so they went, for example, for Snowflake because of the different security reasons and data breaks at that time hadn't launched that product. So many times the decisions are made in, in a point in time and that are made as per the technologies and options that are available then. Uh, but as time progresses, you know, those options get enriched. Um, but you have to make a solution complete at that point in time. So after every, I think, after every frequency, after every interval, you go and evaluate and based on the new features and enhancements that has happened. And, you know, many times the technical debt may take a different course. So th I think that's that's the first part. The next thing is that, okay, if a technical debt exists, which is very common. So, for example, I was working uh, for a, a year ago, I did um, a consultancy work for uh, for a government organization. Um, and they had actually gone and bought a framework. But, you know, it was early stages and we were able to show the differences and all the impacts and all of that. And they were able to change their course. So it's also about realization of that, because many times, you know, uh, being consultants, you know, the clients just don't know. They just don't know what the options are, don't know the impact they, have, they haven't. They're just trying to solve one problem 
and they're not thinking maybe beyond that. So maybe taking a more holistic view um, helps in identifying, okay, what are the different steps? And I think from from third thing is maybe planning. So even if the technical debt exists, um, you can put in a plan which to remove that debt slowly. Because again, removing a tech debt, what I've seen is never a top priority, delivering enhancing features in, in a product and enhancing you know, the project, uh, achieving the deliverables, the MVP, that is usually the main objective. So that can be like a side project that, you know, one by one, you just start eliminating that. And in that you need to prioritize, which is worth and spending time. You know, there's some debt, which is just there, just like in a you know in a biology, there there are so many things in body. You know, appendix is there; it just exists. You just take it out when it's a problem. So, not everything needs to be you know be cured. Um, it's only those top priorities that does affect the working that should be addressed. Yeah, and I I, I definitely agree both with you, Rob and Muhammad. And the reason I ask this question because developers that I speak of, especially the good ones. They're allergic to tech debt. They're like, they know they're doing something wrong. And even me as an architect, I tell them, listen, it's okay. We need to get this feature out. We want to see that it's working. We want not just to build the thing right, we want to build the right thing. So we need to make sure that our customers are actually using it and there's traction, we want to invest in it, and we'll get back to it later. But I think the key part there is to actually get back to that later and not just move on to the next thing blindly because debt accumulates. And I always tell, you know, those developers, like, we don't want to have like zero tech debt. I, I think it's called a debt for a reason, because it's like in finances where companies and individuals, we take on debts, we take loans. We, we want to buy a house, we take a mortgage. We don't just save up all our money until we have enough money to buy the house. We take a mortgage, we take out a loan, that's debt. And we use that debt to create something new, to build something bigger. Uh, to leverage it, and the same thing I think with tech debt. We want to, we want to take out the debt. We want to get our features out faster. We want to get it better. We want to get our development costs lower. But the thing is, if we accumulate too much debt, then it accumulates interest, and that interest adds up. And the thing is that from my experience, and that's why it's important to have measurements, like Rob said. Like it doesn't it doesn't get worse linearly. Usually it gets a bit worse, a bit worse, a bit worse, a bit worse. At some point it gets exponentially worse. And then innovation is pretty much dead. You can't really innovate. You can't do much things because all the time you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to get this feature out and so on. So I think measurements are key here. And that's also part of you know, giving the signals to non-technical stakeholders. For example, if there's a large lead time, then understand why, how much of that is because of tech debt. And of course you can't really measure it. Like it's not scientific, but it's very subjective. But I think a key here is also to have trust because again, if there's no trust, we have like a ton of other issues. And I think once you look at that way, you like, knowing when to pay off your debt, when to return the loan, it basically becomes a decision of okay, when when is my my innovation pace, the 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 pace where I'm developing new features, is it slowed enough is it too much too much slow, then I need to improve more, focus more on tech debt and just, you know, all the time controlling it, not letting it, you know, get, you know, get out of hand. 
And I can say, for example, at Luxury Escapes right now, we're actually devoting a part of the developer, developer time. And then it's changes between team and between teams and across time, but we devote a part of the time to remove tech that. So we have like a list of tasks that they need to do, like update dependencies, fix all kind of, uh, add more alerts, improve the quality and so on. And we actually devote part of the time to do that. I'm not saying it's it's always the most efficient way and sometimes it's not enough, but I think it helps like in controlling the, the overall debt like over time. <laughs> Look, I just wanted to just uh, just make one comment on that. Uh, when Aaron touched about uh, you know the developers and the technical things, one thing I tell my consultant is the technology should work for you rather than you working for the technology. So you know, in technology, especially when and I've been there being a developer for years and you know doing that consultancy work hands on, um, you're so in, in merged in the technology that you want everything to be perfect, right? Which you know is good from a technology you know, excellence perspective, but from a product perspective, maybe it doesn't matter. So I think one aspect is that we don't need to fine tune the technology to the best, you know, to the make it more perfect and the best view of it, but maybe take a product view uh, that, okay, what the product needs, you know, is the product good without it or is it how critical that is? Yeah, I was going to kind of just comment on a couple of points you mentioned there, Iran, which was, you know, the team kind of um, potentially having a sense of, ownership to to devote time back to to you know the technical debt. I think that's that's definitely part of the culture of the team that's built. But um you know also the, the acceptance as you kind of mentioned in, in your organization, you 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 specify a specific set of time and you can kind of dedicate that time and energy towards that. Um, and uh the the interest rate um is is an interesting kind of concept to to factor in because you know as you know people pay off loans and debt you know, interest in general. You have options on how you want to pay that down. Uh, you can do it more frequently, less frequently, and you know, you reap the rewards and, and the pros and cons of, of the trade-offs on that. And I think that's that's definitely a part of a kind of maybe a um, a process that each team individually might have to kind of choose what is beneficial at the moment of time, uh, given the trade-offs. Um, but I also wanted to kind of mention about, um, maybe we're talking here about very specific code release type of um, things, but um, even infrastructure has has debt. Um, you know, there are teams that are very very um, proactive in trying to build a lot of microservices or a lot of a lot of different services out there in the cloud, and that just volume um, requires management, uh, especially for an end to end you know team that that um, builds all, everything together so um there's, there's layers of technical debt and i think that the business can can appreciate uh and you know very similar in red rubble we we spend uh, we have a dedicated portion of our, of our time just towards technical debt but um there's always going to be things that pop up that you have to address um and the, the other thing that we practice is service level objectives which at least helps teams that are more inter-team related be accountable towards certain levels of metrics that we want to make sure that we're healthy on. Um, and that can start raising tech debt issues um, and just at least keep it keep it to a certain point where it's healthy, um, or at least healthy enough where other teams are not impacted and not blocked by, by at least a specific team. Fantastic. Thank you, everybody. Um, we've got another question from Rob this time. The question Rob posed to the group was are high-performing teams a consequence of interlocking personality traits over their hard skills, 
or both? Um, Rob, you go for it. Yeah, so I've I've had this question in my head for quite a number of years, and you know, you you tend to hear in the industry that um, you know you're working in a team and they're they're high performing, and everyone knows about it. Um, and when you kind of take a step back, you can kind of look at it and and probably see that maybe it's because these these team members are, are very well interlocked. Uh, maybe they share a very certain set of skills that complement each other. Um, but also their bond is is kind of unbreakable. You know, they, they share uh, personality that that is just very well geared towards delivering value consistently. Um, and I kind of wanted to pose the question around, you know, is this as simple as that? Are we, are we just looking for people that to make sure that all those personality traits, all of those skills are very well complemented with each other? Um, or, or, is it, or is it a bit more complicated than that? Um, that's kind of what I wanted to really dig into that's interesting you know i i haven't thought about it along the lines of you know having interlocked personality traits of how do you get a team to work better by matching you know each person's personality and i think it's interesting because like if you look at like um a sports team i don't know a basketball team soccer team whatever then it really matters the different personalities of the players in that team because if everyone's on you know every if everyone wants to have the ball all the time and won't pass it to other players then the team will probably won't be successful and you need those players who can pass the ball when you need they need those who want the ball and they can do something good with it so that's interesting the way i usually approach it when building a high performing team is i look more at their their technical skills and their technical level, but also the personality. Let's also look at the personality because the way I see it, a successful team needs to be balanced. It needs to be balanced across the technical skill sets that the team has. So they need to know, like if they do front end, back end, DevOps, whatever, they need to have like all the relevant skills within the team. But more importantly, they need to be balanced in their level i won't call it like seniority level or experience level because it varies from person to person but you typically need to have some people let's say few people who are well experienced who have been around who've seen a lot of things who know how to get things done and there are typically those who are they're from a manager perspective like fire and forget you give them the assignment you give them the task and they'll know to go out break it down do the research and you don't need to like, go after them. You just come back at the end, then you see the result, and typically it will be good. And then on the other hand, you have other team members who have less experience, who have a lot of potential. They want to learn, they want to know more, but they need that that more you know, hands-on approach where you need to see what they're doing, you need to validate with them, you need to question what they're doing, and you need to teach them and mentor them. That's an important part. And I think, a good balance in these types of teams is that where those those experienced team members, those who have been around, when they have the personality traits of being able, not everyone can do that. Sometimes you have people who are able to mentor others, and sometimes you have those that are more introvert, more like do it themselves, and that's fine as well. But if you have those team members, I guess some of them who can mentor others, I think that really helps the team because as you go along, it will grow the team. And in, in, let's say um, let's say an engineering manager who runs the team 
he can't always, or he or she, they can't always mentor all the team members. So it's like a false multiplier when you have team members who can mentor others and you have like this pyramid within the team. And so, like I said, it's also related to personality, but also skill levels. I think that's the best way to grow a, grow a healthy team that's able to perform tasks relatively quickly. Yeah, this reminds me of, um, I think I read somewhere about the Marines. So like when they go and, you know, when they have to select the members, they select the one who is the most trustable, like, you know, rather than the one who is the most capable. Because, you know, in that high intense kind of scenarios, you... Um, you know, you need to trust them rather than, you know, have the best shop shooter. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I tend to believe it is. But I think that trust level thing um, is, I think, a very important factor. Because if you talk about the personality traits, that includes a lot of different aspects of, you know, personality. Um, but then what, yeah, which is, what is the, when, if you prioritize then what is the main key ones? I think trust is one important. Um, for And I know, for example, you know, one of a few of our consultants are uh, working at uh, McQuarrie. And I know that among them, the ones that are most comfortable are the ones that are been working with the team that's already there, maybe in different engagements for the last, you know, five, seven years. And they've got that level of trust and they've got that communications and all of that established. So they are comfortable working with them and that allows them to open up and, you know, with full do development with full throttle. So I think um, having that, um, you know, there's no, I don't think there's a fixed recipe for it. It's just, you know, the team just gels in, you know, the concern and they are able to work it out. And that's something that needs to be discovered rather than, you know, something that you can, it's not like baking where you have the right quantities of sugars and salt that will make it the best, you know, food. So definitely it's not that. Uh, and But I think one important factor is also the leadership. So the man on the top should be, if that person has that go get it kind of an attitude, uh, that also pushes the team to becoming a high-performing team. If, you know, if the perception or the mindset is, oh, hang on, hang on, have we checked these 100 things? No, you haven't gone through the approval process. Then, you know, you can't, you know, even if you get the best people who are best gelled in, you know, maybe they're not able to be the high performance there. So I think it's a mixture of both. So it's the personality of the, the team, the team members, as well as the men on the top who allows them to, you know, to for that um, that explosion of innovation to happen. And, you know, you're able to support that and back that up. I also like tied back in like the high performing team thing back to innovation because I think high, high performing teams are critical to have like innovation in the organization because if the team is suffering and they're always fighting you know, to get their way around to do what they need to do to get things done you know within within the deadlines then innovation becomes much harder whereas if you have the high performing team and you have that across many teams in the organization that allows for innovation to happen you know, more naturally I think because teams are actually doing what they need to do. They do it on time and then gives them like the mental space to think about innovation and and where do I want to be, not just in the next month, but also in the next years to come. Thank you. Uh, didn't have any follow-ups. It was very, it was very deep kind of non-prescriptive kind of like a question answer thing. But yeah, thank you guys. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, we'll move on to the next question, which was posed to the group by Mohammed. Mohammed has asked, what is the biggest threat to innovation in an organization and how do you address it? Mohammed, do you want to start off? 
Yes, look, I mean, I will be very interested in hearing Aaron's and Rob's uh, view on that because, um, you know, innovation is there. Um, they, I know that from my experience, previously working for different clients, there is a certain sect in the organization that is you know, anti-change. They, want, they don't want that innovation to happen because it just disrupts them. So how do you go about and, you know, embrace that, that, okay, innovation is part of it. And, you know, everyone understands and gets on board. So I would like to hear, you know, Aaron's and Rob's view first uh, on this. Um, it's it's interesting. I, I don't think it's, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely not something that you would try to uh, just bake in on your own, right? The innovation can't be, can't just be from one member of, of a team or or a, or a line of managers. So trying to get that commitment from the business is is part of kind of the process, right? Is selling that up into the business. You know, if you're an engineering manager for, from perspective and you need to sell your CTO, um, you know, on, on a level of innovation, then CTO probably needs to have a chat with the also the chief product officer as well. And sell that up into the business that there's there's a there's a portion of time we need to dedicate towards innovation, I suppose. And I think the the key there is that, you know, um, kind of as I probably mentioned a little bit earlier, that there's a level of um, alignment that we are as a business dedicating a portion of our energy or, or space to be able to promote discovery and and see the new landscape and see something that that maybe isn't there, uh, and that innovation comes from that. I suppose from my perspective, it's not necessarily just technical versus just the product thing. I, I don't necessarily believe that they can live independently of each other. Um, they both work in harmony. So, you know, trying to kind of get that carve out um, is probably going to take a fair amount of energy to sell up into the business, to get that commitment, um, get that investment, and then be able to figure out what the piece of the puzzle look like from, from a more kind of delivery perspective. And, um that's kind of the way I'd I'd be looking at it. That's kind of the way that probably I've typically seen it being done as well. Um, but it, it requires an investment. It requires that dedication. It requires that kind of commitment. Um, yeah. Otherwise, it's just teams' energy constantly pushing up um, collectively into the space of you know senior leaders, executives um, trying to kind of drive an agenda that might not be well articulated. Um, and doesn't necessarily align potentially to to an objective or a goal the business wants to kind of achieve. Yeah, so it's interesting. Rob mentioned like product innovation versus technical innovation, how are they tied together? And it's something somewhere along the lines that what I, I was thinking that many times product innovation, product innovation, technical innovation can come together, but sometimes they can come at the expense of one another. So it and really depends on the organization. In some organization, we have product innovation where we constantly think about the user experience and the next features that they want to bring and how can we have something new in the industry in terms of, again, the, the domain that we're, we're, we're building towards. But and sometimes we can have technical innovation. So the platform that we're using, the technology that we're using, the architecture pattern that we're using, and so on. And they can come together. Meaning if an organization is innovative as a whole, so we might have both. And that's a good case. However, sometimes the organization can might want to drive, you know, 
product innovation so fast that technical innovation is left behind because we want to get those features out fast. So it's working. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Don't change things. Just add those tiny little changes over time again and again and again. And that I think also relates back to the tech debt that we talked about earlier, that some in those situations often often the tech debt is not, not managed properly. And sometimes there, it goes the other way around where the product, you know, it renews, but sometimes the organization is already based. They already have their customers. They've been around for a long time and the product becomes, I won't say it becomes stale, but it's less innovative than it used to be. But you have good tech people inside the organization. And I've seen these kinds of organization, although less, though it's less frequent. And the tech people, they want to innovate. They want to move platforms. They want to change things. They want to move to microservices. But the product doesn't really require it. So having a lot of innovation in tech without having in the product is also probably not a good thing, though that could happen. And I think the you asked, I think part of the question was around what prohibits innovation. And I think the key thing that might you know deter from innovation is fear. Fear from change, fear from you know trying out something new, trying out a new technology, trying out a new business approach. And the way I like to combat that is through I like to do a lot of proof of concepts, for example. Like, for example, I want to use a new technology because I think it would benefit the business for several reasons, but I know it'll be a big project. Then, then I might try a proof of concept and try to say, okay, look, I've done this. I've invested like three, five days. Like it's nothing, you know, compared to the budget of the organization. But here it brought us these benefits and to implement it in a large scale, it will cost this much. And then we can have a discussion that's not around fear or what might happen, but based on something, an experiment, an experiment that we ran. So in ran practice, I think that a lot of time that that helps and drive processes forward, you know, with less, with less, you know, objections from various stakeholders. Yeah, I think that these are uh, very interesting input. I think to Aaron's uh, thing, uh, like you're talking about the technical versus the product team. Um, so I think the synchronization of innovation is also an important factor where, you know, if each of them innovate separately, go in their different directions, that is bound to create friction um, and that inhibits, uh, you know, innovation that you know we need to excel it. Um, and I think your your point about that, what is the biggest threat? I think as you said the fear side. Of course, I think that is a big important factor. That but I also recognize that um, people are fearful of change. They don't want things to change because they are so much comfortable in their existing zone. You know, uh, people may uh, may may not have that supremacy. You know, if the change happens, you know they are good at few things, and you know something comes new, they're not good at that. Um, but then, how do we embrace? How do we challenge that? How do we address it? So I think one aspect that uh, that I think uh, or one way is like more like a decision map. So for example, you know, the first of all, I think the management needs to understand that because I think the top level doesn't understand innovation. Uh, 
it's very difficult for an organization to be innovative and or you know it may have some pockets but won't be as an organization be able to you know uh, have that flow of innovation going through so i think i think the main first def- definition is that the the c level they have got innovation as part of their objectives and i think then the second part from decision making is then the second management layer have got goals uh, that are linked to that efficiency. So you have got the business drivers, but then somewhere in the middle manager you've got business plus kind of a technical kind of efficiency where they are forced to innovate because there is no other way of achieving those targets. Um, and then, you know, they can then filter it down to different POCs or different ways of working, experimenting with them. And again, you know, if these objectives will be there in the part of the C level, then maybe the fear will be less because you everyone is going for a business goal, which is, you know, addresses the C levels uh, business goals. So that's the only way to do it. So I, I I think I thought that that is one way how to address that. What do you guys think on that? I think there's you mentioned something, Mohammed, about kind of almost reactive innovation versus proactive innovation, and you know uh, the the commitment. I'll come and go back to what I was saying before, but that commitment to for the business to identify um, whether they need it or not, and what capacity you know they might be a bit late to the game and require a bit more than. You know, say fifty percent of their their time in innovation, but I will say that you know you know executives, senior managers, managers, you know team members, all have the capabilities to innovate. Um, you know businesses change direction you know all the time. It's not uncommon. Um, it's about identifying that um, and putting some time together for it. Uh, probably almost more to what Iran was saying earlier, but you know part of it probably a bit more. I would say lower level, but uh, maybe at any level is maybe just to identify that challenge um, or that opportunity um, because, you know, everyone's busy. Everyone's looking at a certain direction and can't see. So inviting that conversation, inviting that, you know, um, that opportunity to kind of come and surface um, is probably a good spark to start a process around how can we be better, um, better put forward, better put our feet forward versus, you know, be reactive to the industry and market. Um, but yeah, I, I don't like, I see teams as being green and, and sometimes brownfield, you know, there's these common terms thrown around. Um, but I like to kind of be a bit more adaptive and try to keep it a bit more maybe in the middle. I'm not sure what the color will be, but orange probably. Um, but, you know, uh, like you're going to have your your brownfield stuff that you have to maintain and, and nurture and, and have respect for. Uh, but then you have to have a portion of green that you, you know, you're, you're driving towards and there's a North Star and you're, you're innovating. That's part of, part of innovation is there. Um, but to be constantly brown or be constantly green, I think is unsustainable. I think we'll leave it there for now, guys. Um, I just want to thank you all again for joining me on today's podcast. It was a fantastic discussion. Um, and you all provided really interesting insights surrounding um, leadership and innovation as a topic. Um, thank you again for, for listening. Um, And I look forward to catching you next time on the Evolution Exchange podcast.